I wonder how you how you did react whenever that is if you did know before you came this evening. But I, w- I wonder how you did react whenever you discovered we were doing a, a series based on the seven deadly sins. Uh, were, were you interested? Were you intrigued? Uh, a little dubious about it? Maybe even uh, suspicious? One of the first questions that some people ask is, "Whereabouts in Scripture do you find the list?" So, so somebody tell me where in Scripture you find the list. It's not there. You're right, Dorothea. Well done. There is a list in Proverbs uh, which says there are certain things that the Lord detests, uh, like a lying tongue, but that's that's not one of the deadly seven. So actually, as a list, it it doesn't appear anywhere in Scripture. And therefore, for some people, then they go, well, hold on a minute. Why are we looking at this? (laughs) Uh, Why are we dealing with this? And also, uh, it's, it's not always a list that you hear talked about in a, in a Baptist church. Well, hopefully as, uh, as I introduce this series tonight, we're going to tease out some of those sort of queries and concerns and, and really set the scene tonight. That's what tonight's about, really just setting the scene for the next seven Sunday evenings, whenever one by one we're going to look at each of uh, the seven deadly sins. And I also realize that at some point I do need to, to, to deal with this term deadly, like deadly in what sense? Uh, but as we get into this, I, I, I want to start by talking about what, what is the really critical word in, in that sentence, so to speak, uh, seven deadly sins, and it's this word, sin. Now, at one point, and, and we're probably talking years ago now, sin, sin was a word that carried real weight and meaning. For the vast majority of people, it, it was a word that was taken seriously. At one point. And and the idea of sin was recognized as a a grave matter. It was once a solemn word. A word that referred to to something dreadful. And something even dangerous. And, And whatever people meant by the word sin. It was actually treated with a certain degree of respect. Maybe even a, a reverence. Because they realized it was a solemn, a solemn thing. Whereas today, and I doubt many people would argue with me, but sin, not only as a word but as an idea, seems to be of little or limited concern. In fact, you could argue that sin has all but disappeared from our Western culture, at least the, the, the concept of it. It's been calmed down as a word. It's been domesticated, it's been tamed, and therefore, whenever something is described as sinful in the 21st century, for the vast majority of people, it now sort of means it's naughty, but it's nice. Uh, or, I, I know I shouldn't do it, but it's, but it's fun by and large. And anyway, no one's going to get hurt, and therefore, what's the problem? Or alternatively, and maybe this is more the case of the issue, it's not that it's been uh, sort of calmed down, it, it's been trivialized. And so, for example, and this is just one example of this, sins are now talked, apart, uh, talked about as part of a diet plan or, or a regime. Now, in fact, there is one particular weight, weight loss organization, and I'm not going to name them, uh, that refers to an adult's daily sin allowance. Now, I know it's spelt S-Y-N, just in case anybody takes me up on this afterwards. Uh, but it is a clever play on words. And whenever you hear someone say, it's okay, but as an adult, you're allowed five to 15 sins a day, then you realize that actually that word, sin, has lost its impact. 
It's just lost its impact. As one writer comments, sin has become less a measure of our internal character than a measure of our caloric intake. And you might also remember how back in 2003, there was a certain ice cream company that launched a new range based on the seven deadly sins. There's a few smiles. Who who can tell me who that company was? Magnum, yeah. There was one of the seven. And, And so ice cream's named after the seven deadly sins. It's no longer a big deal, is it, really? Sin. Sting's been drawn out. The venom has gone. And I know I could say more about that. But whenever it comes to Scripture and the Bible and God and Christian tradition, you discover a very different perspective on sin. And so you read phrases like, all have sinned. But not only that, but the wages of sin is, is death. And so clearly, one, there's something universal about this, all. But there's also something potentially lethal in that the payout of sin is death. And so for years, Christianity has taught that sin is quite simply destructive. It destroys individual lives, families, Friendships, happiness, peace of mind, innocence, love, security, nature. And most importantly, it destroys our relationship with our Creator. As one Old Testament prophet wrote, your sins have separated you from God. It's your sins that actually hide his face from you. And so sin is not or should not ever be seen as a trivial issue. It's like a virus that has gotten into everything. It's man's basic problem. And actually, its desires literally wage war against your soul. Something the Apostle Peter explicitly stated. Its desires wage war against your soul. So sin is the dark enemy of who you really are. Now, I said a moment ago that the Bible states that all have sinned without exception. In fact, the Bible teaches that every human being enters the world infected with this virus. Again, as one Old Testament psalmist writes, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Seems that we're biased in this direction. That before we start, we come into this world not with a blank slate, but we're kind of preconditioned towards disobedience, towards getting it wrong, towards rebellion. Now I realize that whenever you start talking against it, it's not popular teaching this. People don't like you to say this idea that you were born with this. But at this point, and as I, I try to kind of tease this out a little further, we need to understand or somehow acknowledge the difference between sin, singular, and sins, plural. What is the difference? Sin, as I've already mentioned, is by birth. We are born, according to that psalmist, with this. And that's as a result of something that happened way back at the beginning, back in Genesis 3, Garden of Eden. And as Eugene Peterson uh, said, and here's a quote from our last series, a catastrophe has occurred. 
We are no longer in continuity with our good beginning. We have been separated from it by a disaster. We are also, of course, separated from our good end. We are, in other words, in the middle of a mess. And that mess and that disaster and that catastrophe was the unwelcomed and uncalled for entrance of sin into God's perfect world. And so the Bible clarifies that sin entered the world through one man and then death through sin. And in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. To more or less quote word for word, God's word. And so Adam's original sin has tainted and affected all of us. We are all Sinners, all guilty. And therefore that means that every single person alive is in need of something and that the thing that we're in desperate need of is forgiveness. But sometimes I find that people don't mind being called sinners necessarily because we all are. As long as the sins remain nameless and faceless. When you actually give them a name, when you reveal their identity like pride, lust, envy, greed, anger, gluttony, sloth, well, that's, that's different. That, that's uncomfortable. I don't like that so much. It's as though, and I came across this quote during the week, it's as though we are confronted by muggers in the back alley of our souls. Yes, I'm a sinner, but I I, I just would prefer the sins to remain nameless and faceless. And so sin, singular, describes our fallen condition or our nature in general. Sins are the negative specifics of our fallen humanity. They're the things we do, the offensive words, the attitudes and actions that actually damage our relationships with one another and damage, more importantly, our relationship with God. So sin as a universal condition of every single human being. Yes, it's a tragedy. And on our own, therefore, and by ourselves, there's nothing we can do about that. That, That's how we're born. Nothing we can do about that. We cannot overcome it. It is a condition, therefore, that needs divine intervention. And in Jesus, God did exactly that. He stepped into our world. Lived a perfect life in Jesus. Died a sacrificial death on the cross. His life became an offering for our sin. Your sin, my sin. And the Bible says then, by his wounds we are what we are healed. By his wounds. Nothing we have done. By his wounds we are healed. Forgiven. And therefore no longer separated from God. This relationship that we were created to enjoy, we can now have re-established. And whenever you embrace that, and and you do need to embrace that, and whenever you believe that, and whenever you confess your sin, whenever you reach that point of re-surrendering the rule and reign in your life over to God, then you pass from death to life, according to the Bible. And I then need to sort of finish a verse that I started earlier that says, well, okay, the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life. From God, and it's through Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, then the Bible teaches you receive this new nature. You receive a new nature, and you also receive this incredible gift of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, as your counselor and as your guide. And therefore, you're no longer a slave 
to sin doesn't mean sin disappears. It doesn't disappear altogether from the life of a Christian. It no, it's not a case of it no longer becomes an issue. And anyone who suggests otherwise then kind of needs to face up to these rather direct words from the Apostle John. If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. The sinful nature is not extinguished whenever you become a Christian. You can still follow its desires according to the teaching of the New Testament. Paul deals with this, Galatians 5, explicitly. But now as we, or now we that have the Christians, we are urged, or now that we have the Holy Spirit as Christians, we are urged to follow the Spirit's lead. But Paul actually says there is this conflict. They're in constant battle with each other. Your old nature, your new Which desires are you going to follow? And therefore sin continues to seduce. It really does continue to seduce. And therefore specific sins have to be addressed. Sins like pride. I don't know about you of you here. I am constantly battling this. Constantly. And envy. And lust. Constantly battling them. And so as a child of God and as a Christian disciple, Paul writes these famous words, for I want to do what's right. I do as a Christian, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I want to do what is good, but I don't. And I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Or in the words of a Roman poet, I see the right and approve it too, condemn the wrong, and yet the wrong pursue. And Paul understood that battle, as did the writer of this. And unless we grasp this, we will never fully understand what living the Christian life involves on a day-to-day basis. Because life would be relatively simple If the bad things were always ugly. But they're not. Almost all the individual sins, far from being ugly, repulsive terrors, have become subtly and enticingly attractive. Why is that? And so we've got to take them seriously. We've got to unmask the veneer of attractiveness that sin wears, uncover its ugliness and recognize its destructive ability in our lives. To see the deadliness of it, and I'll return to that in a moment, the deadliness of anger. Sins that Jesus recognized for their damaging effects. And one of the great works that deals with the ugliness of sin in the past was a piece done in the 13th century called Divine Comedy by Dante. Is that right? Is that the right way to pronounce it? And it dealt with the ugliness of sin. And it showed what certain sins and their destructive patterns lead to. Now, I know different people have different views on this particular piece of work. But let me quote uh, Graham Tomlin, who's the principal of St. Paul's Theological Centre in London. He writes... Divine comedy showed how each of the seven deadly sins received its fitting punishment in a vision of such elegant symmetry that it seems obvious. In Dante's imaginary hell, the angry are condemned to fight each other for all eternity. 
The gluttonous are made to lie in mud, exposed to constant rain and hail, just like the pigs their behavior copied, and end up eating rats, toads, and snakes as a parody of their excessive greed. The slothful or indolent are condemned to running constantly and breathlessly, and so on. And the point that he was making through that was, sins are not trivial. They may retain an attractive quality, but consider where they lead. Consider where they take you. Now, in our lives as Christians, they will not take us to hell. But they can still wreak havoc. They can still disrupt, still influence, still affect our relationships with one another. But more importantly, affect our relationship with our Heavenly Father. It can never destroy They can never destroy that particular relationship. But that they can cause it to become unsettled. Where we recognize there's something wrong. And therefore, for me, that's why we're doing this series. That's why I'm convinced there's a real need to explore these seven deadly sins. It's not an exhaustive list. But it's a good one. And it's because as we address and we consider the seven or these vices, and some people prefer to call them vices than sins, we reveal as we study them that discipleship matters. That actually growth as a Christian is important. And so the study of these and a willingness to confront them can be a catalyst for spiritual growth if it's done within the context of spiritual formation. Let me say that again. One of the reasons for me why we must confront these is as a catalyst for spiritual growth. And it can be done then within the context of spiritual formation. So as a Christian who wants to grow in my faith, as a Christian who still wants to take sin seriously, as a Christian who does want to see the virtues of the faith displayed in my life, I therefore think it's important for me to name the sins, to confront them, to consider them, to address them, to wrestle with them, to see have they begun to get a hold in my life? Have they become not just tempted, but have they become patterns of behavior? And for some people they do. If we want to discover what it means to grow in Christian character, then I believe we've got to address issues like this and talk about them and think about them and explore them together. Otherwise, these things can have a corrosive effect on our Christian lives. I'm sure you sit here this evening and you know people, people who once walked well with God, who once walked close with God, but as a result of certain choices they have made in their lives, are no longer in that intimate relationship that they once were. And if you were to identify some of the reasons, at times it can be because some of these things were left unchecked and were allowed to corrode their spiritual lives. In other words, what we're really talking about here, I suppose, is discipleship. And becoming holy is one of the central calls of Christian discipleship. And that involves putting away the acts of the sinful nature and then clothing ourselves with some incredible life-enhancing virtues. Let me just read you two extracts from God's Word that sort of backs this up. And let me just let God's Word speak for itself in this. You were taught to put away your former way of life, 
your old self, corrupted and deluded by its lusts. And you were taught to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And then you were taught, it says, to clothe yourselves with the new self. Now notice, notice the wording here. You were taught to clothe yourselves. Choices you make. Created according to the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, put to death whatever in you is earthly. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, then clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, one of the movements in the rhythm of discipleship and sanctification in this process of becoming holy is the movement of dying, where we actually choose to put things to death. And it is the practice of confession, in the practice of confession, that the dying of conversion repeatedly occurs. And yet that constant dying requires, on my part, and a willingness to confess my specific sins to God. And in many ways, this is how the tradition of the seven deadly sins got started. Does anyone know exactly when they did get started as a tradition? It's around the the 4th century. And it was because the Desert Fathers began a sort of Christian system of self-examination. And they used these seven sins as a kind of lens, as a kind of framework for confession. And so rather than praying in general for forgiveness, please forgive me for my sin. They encouraged others who wanted to take their growth as disciples of Jesus Christ, they encouraged others to name those specific sins, to identify them, to ask God for forgiveness for committing those specific sins if necessary. And for me, it is a great model to use. And so, as I say, this journey that we embark upon this evening, in a sense, is about spiritual formation. It's about character development. It's, a, it's about recognizing that certain sins, and yes, here are seven of them, but it's not an exhaustive list, but here are seven of them that need to be seen for what they are. That they are highly destructive. That they are deadly to our spiritual well-being and growth. But alongside each vice each week, what we're going to also do then is consider a range of positive virtues that we can pursue instead. Because there's got to be balance. But where did this uh, exact list of seven come from? I've said they can date back to the fourth century, but that's not quite right. Uh, Initially, there there was a list of eight. And then somebody decided, well, let's bring it down to seven. And the number has stuck, although it is fair to say that the list itself has shifted over time. And the exact sins and the vices and the order in which they come vary depending on which list you look at. But here are those seven that are widely recognized. Pride, envy, anger, gluttony, greed, lust, and sloth. I'm just talking to somebody over coffee time, and, and there's certain ones that kind of just, you go, I, I, don't, I don't quite understand why... That is there. And why that is not there. Like sloth? Why? And regarding the term deadly, I I realize that for some people that that, that can cause slight concern and confusion. Because am I suggesting, are we going to be suggesting that if you believed in and have confessed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that if you commit one of these specific sins, that it can cause spiritual death again? 
that somehow if you were to commit one of these that would sever your relationship with God that you have discovered in Jesus. Well, no, that's not what we're saying. We're using the term deadly for two reasons. One, it's familiar. But more importantly, because it conveys the idea that we actually still believe sin is a serious issue. That sin needs to be taken seriously. And any authentic Christian disciple who takes God's word to heart, then I don't believe is afraid to use that kind of language. Because they know that this is stuff I need to take seriously. These are things that lurk within. These are things that I need to put to death. And so it is my hope and prayer that however you have sort of reacted or do react to the idea of doing this series, that you might approach it with an open heart and an open mind in order to learn more about these things, yes, but in order to learn more about yourself. And so that by looking at our character in the mirror offered by one Christian tradition, that we will be better enabled to make progress in spiritual formation and turn from, yes, these lesser vices to pursue greater virtues. That it is about discipleship. That it is because we care about growth and about character development. Let me pray. Father, as as each of us sit here before you this evening, we recognize that uh, you are the God who searches hearts. And, And you know the areas that we struggle with and the specific sins that really pose a real temptation to us and where we make so many mistakes. And so God, you've, you have advised us to put these things to death, to clothe ourselves with different things, altogether different things. And so I pray that as we pursue this series, that as we go through each week, as we consider each in turn, that we'll be honest with ourselves and honest before you, And we'll discover more and more about what it means to walk as Christ walked. To follow in his steps. To see the fruit of his character expressed in our lives. So help us God. In Jesus name. Amen.